This morning, Jeremiah chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Some people say that bad things come in threes. Bad things come in threes. That's an old wives' tale, uh, some folks say. Uh, but we've even seen it this last couple of years here in our country. We had the stock market crash of September and August of 2008. And then we had the bailout, uh, bailing out the banks that caused uh, the difficulty just shortly thereafter. And just recently now we've had this disaster in the Gulf of Mexico that could be an ecological disaster beyond anybody's understanding and also an economic one-two punch, three-punch that could really, really set us in a downward spiral. Things come in threes. Perhaps you've, uh, you've seen that in your own life where you had a bad day and it wasn't just a bad day with one thing, but it kind of comboed into three. Uh, a few years ago, there was a book written called The Perfect Storm. There was a movie written about it, and it was a real event that took place in late October of 1991 when three forces joined together just off the East Coast, Northeast Coast, created what we called The Perfect Storm, a monster storm of ec- huge proportions. An appalling and horrible storm. Well, this morning in Jeremiah chapter 5, the Lord speaks through Jeremiah, and in verse 30 and 31, towards the end of the chapter, it says, An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule. On their own authority, they do what they want, doing what's right in their own eyes. And the people, that's everything is okay. It's fine. An appalling and horrible thing has happened. Literally a spiritual perfect storm that would bring disaster on the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judah in that time. What I want to do is I'm going to look at I want to look at the whole chapter, as we always have. We'll kind of read it and look at some major thoughts. But I want to look at these last two verses in chapter 5 and explain them and and, uh, more fully in what it means back then, but also what it means for us in the hope, (laughs) uh, in the hope that a horrible and appalling thing would not take place in our country, in our church, and especially in our lives. So let's do that. First, let's read through the chapter, and we'll focus in, as, as we have, as been our practice, through the book of Jeremiah up till now, looking at the main thoughts, and then we'll focus in on just the last two verses. Chapter 5, verse 1. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, and look now and take note. And seek in her open squares, if you can find a man, if there's one who does justice, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. O Lord, do not thine eyes look for thy truth? Thou hast smitten them, but they did not weaken. Thou hast consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, they are only poor, they are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord or the ordinance of their God. I will go to the great ones 
And I will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord and the ordinance of their God. But they too, with one accord, have broken the yoke and burst the bonds. Therefore a lion from the forest shall slay them. A wolf of the deserts will destroy them. A leopard is watching their cities, and everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces, because their transgressions are many, their apostasies are numerous. Why should I pardon you? Your sons have forsaken me and sworn by those who are not gods. When I had fed them to the full, they committed adultery and they trooped into the harlot's house. They were well-fed, lusty horses, each one neighing after his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? And a nation such as this shall not... Shall I not avenge myself? First main thought here is because of the godlessness and corruption, the Lord could not pardon. Verses 1 through 9, because of godlessness and corruption, the Lord could not pardon. Verse 10, go up through her vine rows and destroy, but do not execute a complete destruction. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have dealt very treacherously with me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord and said, Not he, misfortune will not come on us, and we will not see this sword or famine. And the prophets are as wind, and the word is not in them. Thus it will be done to them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, Because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, it will consume them. Behold, I am bringing a nation against you from afar, a house of Israel from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation, an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open grave, and of them are mighty men. They will devour your harvest and your food, your sons and your daughters, your flocks and your herds, your vines and your fig trees. They will demolish with a sword your fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make you a complete destruction. Verses 10 through 18. In spite of a feeling of security, a sense of security, the Lord would make good His word. In spite of a feeling of security, the Lord would make good His word. Verse 19. And it shall come about when they say, Why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? Then you shall say to them, As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? For I have placed the sand as a boundary for the sea, an eternal decree, so it cannot cross over it. Though the waves toss, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot cross over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. They do not say in their heart, Let us now fear the Lord our God, who gives rain in its season, both the autumn rain and the spring rain, who keeps for us the appointed weeks of the harvest. For your iniquities have turned these away, and your sins have withheld good from you. For wicked men are found among my people. They watch like fowlers lying in wait to set a trap. They catch men like a cage full of birds, so their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and rich. 
They are fat. They are sleek. They also excel in deeds of wickedness. Do not please the cause. The cause of the orphan. They might prosper. They do not defend the people, the rights of the poor. Shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord? A nation such as this, shall I not avenge myself? An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Third main thought here is because of excessive wickedness, the Lord would judge. And in these first prophecies, in the first couple of chapters of Jeremiah, because of excessive wickedness, the Lord would judge his people. Now, let's turn and just look at these last few verses found in chapter 5. Jeremiah's conclusion in light of all that he said, kind of, just kind of, boom, focuses on these last two verses. It's almost like saying, because of what I've written in verses 30 and 31, this is why that which I have just said has, is and will take place. I want to look at these four statements. And there's four statements found in verse 31. And I want to ask some questions. Sometimes you can understand an element by asking questions. They taught me at Bible school that if you have a passage, the most important thing to do is what? Ask questions. Why do they say that? What does that mean? So I want to ask four questions that are tied to the four statements in the hope that we can better understand what Jeremiah is saying to the people of Israel at that time, but also what he's saying to us. Four questions. The first question is, why is it so easy to say what is false rather than speaking the truth? Why is it so easy to say what is false rather than speaking the truth? Now, in Jeremiah's day, the prophets of the Lord were saying, peace and safety, everything is going to be okay. The Lord will not will help us defeat our enemies. We're all going to be okay. But that was not the truth. Jeremiah was teaching the truth. And we'll know, we know that's true because that's exactly what Jeremiah said was about to come upon Jerusalem. That's exactly what happened. Why did they do that? Why were they speaking falsehood rather than speaking the truth of the Lord? Well, we're going to be looking at the New Testament, so put your bulletin in Jeremiah chapter 5. Let's look at a few scriptures in the New Testament. The New Testament helps us understand this concept. First is in 2 Corinthians 4.18. 2 Corinthians 4.18. It says, While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now here, Paul is telling us to focus in on that which is not seen, because it's eternal. And so my point here is that oftentimes we focus our attention on that which is seen, rather than what is not seen. And that's why oftentimes it's so easy to say what is false rather than speaking the truth. Now, what do you mean? What do I mean by that? When we're focusing on the scene, our focus is on what? On man and what he would want, as opposed to that which God would want. And so we're very concerned. 
we're very much concerned about what people think about us, what people would say, how people would react to us when we speak the truth, especially when the society is going south, (laughs) heading south. It becomes very hard. We're focusing on that which is seen. Who wants to rain on somebody's parade? Who wants to be the bad guy? Who wants to spoil the party? Mm. It becomes very difficult to speak the truth when everyone else is going the opposite way. But it becomes easy to speak the truth when our eyes are focused on the eternal things, the things that really matter. First reason. Second reason is found in Second Timothy. Turn there with me for just a moment. Second Timothy three twelve. Second reason why it's so easy to say what is false rather than speaking the truth is found in Second Timothy three twelve. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Here's the reason people don't want to speak the truth. Because oftentimes, especially when society is going south and you speak the truth, guess what that means? That means that you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be hated. And as we read the book of Jeremiah, that's exactly what we're going to see happen to our dear brother. He is opposed by the religious leaders, the secular leaders, and a majority of the population of Jerusalem that day because he was speaking the truth and they did not want to hear it. They did not want to hear it. We see the hands of all those who are looking for persecution. Uh, None of us are looking for persecution. But oftentimes the temptation is not to speak the truth because when we do, we'll suffer persecution. Third reason, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says this, Matthew 12:34. for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Jesus says, the mouth speaks out of that which is in your heart. Third reason why oftentimes it's easy to say what is false rather than speaking the truth is we really don't believe the truth or, even worse, we don't even know what's true. Because what is in our heart is what comes out of our mouth. Now, if we don't know the truth, we will not speak the truth. Or if we don't believe the truth, We won't say the truth because it's really in your heart. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you really, 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 really believe what's in the Bible? Do you really believe it or is it kind of like a mythology? You know, there's gods and all that stuff up there. Yeah, then you kind of believe it, kind of make a intellectual assent to the truth. But it really hasn't, you don't really believe it enough to let it change your life. Do you really, really believe it? Because if you really, really believe it, you'll speak the truth. Because it's what in your heart that you speak out of your mouth. First century Christians and into the second century suffered immense persecutions because once or twice a year they were required to come to the temple of Caesar and to throw a little incense on the altar 
And to say these words, Caesar is Lord. Now they said to the Christians, the authorities of the day, listen, you can have your Jesus thing by yourself and whatever you're doing, but you need to come and throw the incense and you need to say these words. Caesar is Lord. Hmm. Many Christians would not say this. Um, They couldn't utter those words because they knew the truth. Caesar wasn't Lord, was he? No, 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 no. Jesus was Lord. And because they wouldn't say those few words, many of them lost their lives. Now, other Christians in name or whatever uh, said, oh, what's the big deal? Uh, who, you know, it's just three couple of words, just once a year, just throw the incense on and Caesar's Lord and go on about our business. Hmm. When we really don't believe the truth, or we really don't know the truth, then it becomes easy to kind of, oh, fudge. Just to fudge it a little bit when push comes to shove. Why is it so? Why were the prophets prophesying falsely? Because sometimes it's easy to say what's false rather than speaking the truth. Second question we want to ask, why is it so easy to do what's right in our own eyes rather than obey the Scriptures? Second question, why is it so easy to do what is right in our own eyes rather than obey the Scriptures. And that goes back to the second statement found in verse 31. And the priests rule on their own authority. Or you could say they were doing what they thought was best. They were doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. Why is it so easy to do what is right in our own eyes, rather than obey the clear teaching of the Scriptures? Well, let's look in the New Testament. First one is found in Romans chapter 7. Here Paul speaks about his struggle as a Christian. And listen to what he says. You really need to go back up to um, uh, probably verse 18, kind of get the context. Romans seven eighteen. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I'm wishing, the wishing is present in me, but the doing of it, the good, is not. For the good that I wish, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not wish. If I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. I find then a principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my member, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death. First reason it's so easy to do what's right in our own eyes rather than obey the scriptures, because obedience is a struggle. (laughs) Listen to Paul. Listen to what he's saying. I really want to do what's right, but often I find myself I'm doing exactly what I hate, that which is wrong. We could ask for a show of hands that how many of us have that similar experience every day. Obedience is a struggle. 
And when we watch all of our friends or all of our society or all of our country marching to the drum in a different way, sometimes it becomes so hard. It's a struggle, isn't it? It's a struggle. And we become what they say, weary and well-doing. Weary and well-doing. We get tired of the fight. And the Bible tells us this fight will go on until we receive our new bodies. That's why he says, Oh, wretched man, who is going to deliver me from the body of what? This death where sin dwells in my flesh. Obedience is a struggle. And it'll be a struggle until you have your new body. Obedience is a struggle. Second reason of why it's so easy to do what is right in our own eyes rather than obey the Scriptures is found in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If therefore there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. The second reason why it's easy to do what's right in our own eyes, rather than obey the scriptures, because obedience is selfless. Disobedience is selfish. (laughs) Selfish. Notice what he says. The New Testament is filled with scriptures that tell us to do what? To deny ourselves. Isn't that what Paul says here? Let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Obedience to the scriptures also means that we have to be selfless. Let me ask you a question. You don't have to answer it. won't ask for a show of hands. When something new comes into your life, maybe a new um, thing at work or something in the family or in your personal life, what is the first thing that oftentimes comes to your mind? What's the first thing that comes to you when you're faced with a new circumstance? Well, how will this affect me? (laughs) How will this affect me? You see, life oftentimes... Is all about me, myself, and I. And obedience is about being the exact opposite. Being the exact opposite. Obedience is selfless, not selfish. Second Timothy three sixteen is the third reason. Second Timothy three sixteen. Why is it so easy to be comfort? Uh, why is it so easy to do what is right in our own eyes? Rather than obey the scriptures, Second Timothy 3.16, very familiar scripture. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Obedience is a result of a high view of scripture. Obedience is a, is a result of a high view of scripture. If indeed the book that you have in your lap is the word of God without error, without fault, then you would be very careful to consider what the word of God is saying to you. However, if it is 
a book that contains truth or has some truth in it. But at the same time, there's also written within this book what we call cultural adaptations, uh, historical viewpoints that no longer really apply to us in the enlightened stage of living in the 21st century. These were for those poor folks back in the first century or even in the Hebrew Scriptures. We've moved on to a higher plane of truth. And then what happens is, well, uh, this is a suggestion, something that we might care to do, but can really be perhaps put aside because after all, we know what is right and how to live our lives. And so it doesn't become a priority. Obedience is a result of a high view of Scripture. Third question. These are hard questions, aren't they? (laughs) Why is it so easy to be comforted rather than to be confronted with our sins? And that goes back to the third part of the statement found in verse 31. The prophesied falsely, the prophets prophesy falsely, the priests rule on their own authority, and guess what? Hey, we like it. We like it. We love it. This is nice. What's really going on there? They're being comforted rather than being confronted with sin. Why is that? Well, I've got three New Testament answers. Second Timothy, Second Timothy, just the next page to your right. Second Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. That's exactly what was going on in Jeremiah's day. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Why is it so easy to be comforted rather than confronted with our sin? Because there are times when we want our ears tickled. What does it mean to have your ears tickled? Well, you want to hear something pleasant. You want to hear something entertaining, something that's enjoyable, something that allows you to remain in the place you are without challenging you to change. We want to be tickled. Now, all of you know, as much as uh, you know your pastor, I love a good story, I love a good laugh, but is that all there is? No. No. Sometimes we have a propensity to want to be just hear the good stuff rather than you need to change as we're confronted with our sin. Second Corinthians fifteen thirty three, one of my favorite scriptures. Second, excuse me, First Corinthians fifteen thirty three. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three is the second New Testament answer. Why is it so easy to be comforted rather than to be confronted with our sin? It's because bad company corrupts good morals. My mother used to say, birds of a feather stick together. (laughs) Birds of a feather stick together. And you're saying, well, what does this mean, Pastor Neil? Just imagine yourself struggling with a particular moral issue, whatever it is. Just insert whatever it is, okay? 
The last people you want to be around are what kind of people? Are the people who have the victory, right? You want, to have, you want to be comforted. You don't want to be around those people who are living for Christ. Why? Because their actions, listen carefully, confront you and me with my sin. So what do we do? We try to drag them down to our level. That's why Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. So we're kind of hanging around with a guy who's kind of living for the Lord. So what do we want to do? We want to drag him down to us, our level. Get him back into sin. Why? Because it makes us feel good. Because if everybody else is doing it, then it's not so bad. Not so bad. I often tell parents, the most difficult time are oftentimes those teen years. How do you get your teens through those difficult years? You encourage them to nurture Nurture those relationships that where the, their friends and their peers are, are wanting to do more than just kind of get through life. Really have some goals and really want to go somewhere with their lives. Those are the kind of people we want our children to be around, not the others. Why is it so easy to be comforted rather than be confronted? Because we seek the comfort that doesn't confront us with the reality of us needing to change and repent of our sins. Final um, New Testament scriptures in 2 Corinthians 12.7. 2 Corinthians 12.7 says, Paul is speaking about his thorn in the flesh and because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. My point here is that pride is the enemy of a walk with Jesus. Pride is the enemy of a walk with Jesus. Paul had some incredible revelations and God touched his flesh to keep him from getting prideful. Why? Why is that so important? Because pride is the enemy of a walk with Jesus. Pride is the enemy of a walk with Jesus. James chapter 4 says, 6 says, God is actively working against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Why? Because pride will keep us from what? Being in, being in a place where we're confronted with our sins. I don't want to hear that. No, 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 don't talk. Would you draw near to a place if you're filled with pride and all of a sudden the pastor or the person who's leading the Bible study not pointing a finger at you, all of a sudden through the scriptures confronts you with the sin and the reality of your, your rebelling against the Lord. Oh, you don't want to be humbled. So pride oftentimes keeps you from a place where you're confronted with your sins and you, you just want to be comforted and told that everything is okay even when it's not okay. The title of that book years ago, I'm okay, you're okay, not true. <laughs> you're a sinner and I'm a sinner and we're both lost. That's a little bit closer to the truth, my friends. Okay, last question, moving on really quickly. What will be the outcome of this course of action? What will be the outcome of this course of action? Prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it. Well, what's, and then he says, but what will you do at the end of it? What will you do at the end of it? What will be the outcome of this course of action? 
And of course, we can't help but turn to Romans chapter 1. Now in Romans 1, Paul is dealing with a group of people who have come to the knowledge of God, or at least understanding of the Creator God. They've looked at nature, they've seen His, his attributes in nature, and they turn away from that revelation and say, no, we'd rather worship sticks and stones. They worked, worshiped the creation rather than the creator. And it seems like we're moving in that way. Mother Earth has almost become an object of worship. And it's a beautiful earth and we love the earth. But it's not God. It is not God. There is a creator behind the creation. Okay, that's what's going on. Notice what it says in verses 24, 26, and 28. Three times he tells them, when you're in a condition, you're saying no to the truth and the revelation of God. He says, and God did what? Gave them over. Gave them over to what? The fullness of all that they were believing. Gave them over to the consequences in their own bodies, in their own lives, so that it was consuming them. Consuming them. He pulled his hand of protection off them. And they embraced the fullness of their sin. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Prophesied falsely. The priests did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. The people were fine with that. What was going to happen? God was what? going to give them over to the consequences of their actions. Here's the lie we tell ourselves. Here's the lie. I can do this and it won't get out of control. I can get away with this and it won't grab a hold of me. I can break the speed laws and I can drive drunk and it'll be okay. Nothing will happen. I can steal from where I work because after all, we know they're not paying me enough so I can take a little bit on the side. We can steal and, and it, it'll not affect me. I can get away with it. I can cheat at school. I can cheat at school and it won't affect my life later on. It won't affect my attitude. I won't get caught. I look at pornography and I'm fine. It'll never grab a hold of me. I can use drugs recreationally or alcohol recreationally and it'll never consume me. So I have no control over my own life. That'll never happen to me. I can lie and nobody will ever know it. Uh, not true, because the Bible proclaims we turn away from that. He removes his hand. He gives us over to that which we've entered into. Now think about the people of Jerusalem in, Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. Prophets prophesying falsely. People doing whatever they wanted right in their own eyes. People loved it. Everything was going to be just two thumbs up. Amen? That's what they're thinking. One day they woke up and the Babylonian army was in the streets of Jerusalem 
They were burning the temple, their precious temple. Many of the people were killed and the balance were let off captives to live the rest of their lives as slaves in Babylon. God gave them over to the consequences and the depth of their sin. An appalling and horrible thing. An appalling and horrible thing has happened. Okay. I want to close with a little story. It's about God. God was missing for six days. Eventually, Michael the archangel found him resting on the seventh day. He inquired, where have you been? God smiled deeply and pointed downward to the clouds. Look, look what I've made. Michael, the archangel, looked puzzled. What is it? Well, it's a planet, replied God. I put life on it. I'm going to call it Earth, and it's going to be a place to test balance. Balance, required Michael, the archangel. I'm confused. God explained, pointing to different parts of the Earth. For example, in Northern Europe, there'll be a place of great opportunity and wealth, but yet in Southern Europe, not so much so. Over here, I've put some people of one color, and over here, I've put a people of another color. Balance. Over here, be a country that's very, very warm, and over here, a country that's very, very cold. Over here, a country that's desert, and over here, lush forests. Balance. Opposites. The angel was impressed. He pointed to a land. He said, well, what's that over there? He said, well, that's Washington State. The most glorious place on earth. There are beautiful mountains, rivers, streams, lakes, forests, hills, plains. The people from Washington State are going to be handsome, modest, intelligent, humorous. They're going to travel the world. They'll be extremely sociable, hardworking, high achieving, carriers of peace, and producers of software. <laughs> Michael gasped in wonder and admiration, but he said, Well, what about balance? I thought you'd say there would be balance. God smiled. There's another Washington. Wait till you see the idiots that I put there. (laughs) We, We have a tendency, listen carefully, we have a tendency to blame Washington, don't we? It's all, maybe God, you know, it's God. But guess what, my friends? The problem is not in Washington. It's the problem is... You and me and the rest of us, those people in Washington, whether they're in the Democrats or the Republicans, they're a reflective of who? Us. They didn't, they didn't have a military coup and seize power. We voted them in. But guess what? We can vote them out. You see, my friends, change, real change, starts with me. Real change starts with you. Not believing and saying what is false, but speaking the truth. Not doing what's right in our own eyes, but being careful to obey the clear teachings 
of the Scriptures. And being able to say, it's not my brother nor my sister, O Lord, that's standing in the need of prayer, but it's me. I need to always be confronted with my selfishness and my pride and my sin. May God grant us the grace to do that. May God protect this country, this church, and the lives that sit before me this morning. Let's pray. Father, on this Memorial Day, we think about our country, our dear country that you've given. We think about Jeremiah and that day that he penned these words from the mouth of God. His heart broke because he loved his country. And yet he was called a traitor because he sought to bring the people back to God. Lord, would you bring this nation back to God? Would you bring this church closer to you? Would you bring my heart and the hearts of everyone here this morning to a place where you truly are, not Lord and Savior in word, but also in thought and truth and deeds and actions, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me this morning. As we close with our closing song, the Lord has touched your heart and you need prayer. God has brought you here this morning to hear the word of God. It's not my word, it's his word. And he wants you. See, he has a plan. And we can frustrate his plan. We're free moral beings. But you don't have to. Jesus Christ will set us free. If you have needs in your life, something going on, take some time. Please come forward. There'll be men and ladies up here. We'd love to pray for you. Josh.